everybody, and welcome back to the Neurodiverging Podcast. My name is Danielle Sullivan, and I am your host. I am a coach at Neurodiverging Coaching, and I am an autistic parent of two neurodivergent kids. I'm very happy you're here with us today. We have a great interview in store for you. Christine M. Kondo was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, previously known as Asperger's, in 2015 at the age of 42. Her diagnosis spawned a writing and advocacy career to increase awareness and acceptance of autism, particularly in women, which you know is a big thing for me too. Kondo has been published in the Washington Post, Autism Parenting Magazine, and Oracle, and is published on Medium. She also maintains a personal blog about her experience. Link is below. Kondo's writing focuses on dismantling common misconceptions about autism and supporting the burgeoning neurodiversity movement of which we are all a part, I hope. Her ultimate goal is to lobby to amend the American with Disabilities Act to include specific accommodations for people with non-physical disabilities in accordance with their unique needs. Kondo has a bachelor's in both English writing and biological sciences and is currently pursuing a master's degree in professional and technical writing at George Mason University. In addition to writing and speaking, Kondo also provides autism accommodations consulting for employers and educators of adults on the spectrum. I am so excited to be talking to Christine today. We are gonna be covering how she found out she was autistic, how she got into the neurodiversity movement, some of her publications and the responses she's received to those publications, because some of them have gone quite viral at this point, and you may even recognize her name while we're talking about them. And also we'll be talking about the study she's performing now as part of her master's degree, which is entitled Becoming Authority, How Autistic Writers Use Rhetoric to Combat Stereotypes and Empower Autistic Narratives. For this study, she is interviewing autistic writers about their lived experiences from childhood and autism diagnoses to professional careers and talking to autistic writers about what kind of language they're using and how they're describing autism in their language as themselves. Before we move into that conversation, I don't want to keep you too long, but I do want to thank my patrons for supporting this episode of Neurodiverging. Patrons support transcription services, my ability to actually work on this, my ability to reach out to uh, interview people, to set up these interviews, to recording equipment for them and all the things. So thank you, thank you, thank you patrons for supporting me with your funds. It is so appreciated and this work would not happen without you. If you would like to become a patron, you can pledge a buck, $5, $10, whatever you want, $3 a month at patreon.com slash neurodiverging. You cancel it at any time, but as long as you are a patron, you get awesome behind the scenes benefits and you know that your money is going to pay other autistic people for their work. Mostly not me. I'm mostly a volunteer, but certainly our transcribers and our website professionals and the folks who are writing the articles for neurodiverging.com are being paid with your funding. So it is very much appreciated by me and all of them as well. That's patreon.com slash neurodiverging or throw 20 bucks at us one time at paypal.me slash neurodiverging. Also, please just check out the website when you have a minute at neurodiverging.com. We have lots of articles, we have full podcast transcriptions, and we run free and low cost educational events every single month. So just go there and click to find our full list of upcoming webinars, upcoming educational options, upcoming Q and A's, et cetera. Thanks so much for being here with us. And without further ado, here is our interview with Christine. Enjoy. Well, welcome to the podcast, Christine. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm well, thank you. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing good. We're, I was just telling you, we're having weird weather in Colorado and it's messing with my brain a little bit. So um, I'm excited to have a, a, a really cool conversation to focus on. Because um, when we talked previously, it was like, I wanted to talk to you about 10 different things and we were trying to stay focused. So I'm excited to get a chance to like dig in a little bit more. So, sure. Can we start off? Would you mind just telling the audience a little bit about yourself and your background? You have been working in the self-advocacy kind of field for a, quite a while now. A little, it seems, it doesn't seem like quite a while, but <laughs> I, I guess it must be. So yeah, um, I have a couple of bachelor's degrees. I got a bachelor's in English writing when I first um, went to college right after high school. And then I went back to get a bachelor's in animal sciences um, to kind of flesh out and because I really liked working with animals. And um after that, I started a graduate program in genetics and really hit a wall. I, uh, I, f I failed my first exam, which is completely unlike me. Uh, I couldn't get a hold of the work. I couldn't, I was miserable, horrible on the bench. And when I went in to see my professors, they were like, you're not 
understanding the questions we're asking. You're not answering the questions we're asking. And so I had suspected that maybe I had Asperger's. I didn't really know that much about it, um, but because I was having so much trouble, I went in and took the whole, you know, the whole psychological yeah. battery. It's hours and hours. Like they test you for a lot of things yeah. and discovered that uh, I had autism level one with all of the attendant challenges and that it sort of explained why I was struggling in graduate school. Um, so I left that program and then uh, I kind of took it upon myself to start learning a little bit more about autism and, and doing my own research. And that led to starting a graduate program in, I want to say, gosh, it was probably a long time ago, like 2017, <laughs> 2018. Mm -hmm. And that's when I um, started to really delve into it yeah. and uh, not just read the research by people who have do not have autism, who's been researching autism since the 70s and 80s and whatever, but by people who actually had autism mm -hmm. and were learning about other people with autism. And so it all kind of grew out of there. And I became aware that um, there's just not a lot of research on people with autism who are not young male children. Mm -hmm. It's just not. And that people have sort of the stereotypical idea of what autism looks like in their head that is not accurate at all. Mm -hmm. And so from there, it's just sort of become my mission to try to give other autistic people a voice and and to sort of like let the lay people around me and, and people know what the actual autistic experience is like for someone like me who was diagnosed as an adult in her 40s and, um, and sort of, I don't know what the language is like, I pass, mm -hmm. I guess you could say. Yeah. Like people don't know I have autism. Like even other autistic people say that they would not have guessed that I was autistic. Mm -hmm. So, and so that's that's where I am. I'm working on this master's degree, which I hope to finish in less than five years. We'll see. It is. There's a lot of work to get a math. Oh my goodness! I wish I could just do all the reading, and that yeah. was it. If I could mm -hmm. just do all the reading, that would be great. Yeah. But yeah. They want <laughs> think... this thesis thing, like. I changed my thesis topic like six times and it didn't oh, yeah. help me. Yeah. I, <laughs> but, but so your sort of avenue for um, kind of educating people about autism or talking about autism from the view of autistics has been through writing, right? Like that's yes. your, I know you've published a lot of articles, you've been in various newspapers and magazines and you have a blog and all these things. What are yes. some of the, what was sort of the motivation for starting that writing process was it really just telling people you know autistics should have our own voice or was it was there anything else kind of going into that for you that's such a great question uh I actually had started the blog I started my blog in 2014 because I I suffered uh, a pretty severe um acute onset nerve injury under my shoulder blade and mm -hmm. I was in excruciating pain day in day out it took them over a year to figure out what's wrong with me and I used the blog as a way of sort of like working through, mm -hmm. you know, having all this pain all the time. And um, then when I just received my autism diagnosis in 2015, things, it just sort of the focus of the blog shift, yeah. shifted sort of naturally into mm -hmm. my experience as someone who has just learned that she's autistic. Um, and so... I've always been a writer. I love writing. Uh, it's always come very easily to me. I'm very fortunate in that respect. Um, and so it just seemed like a natural way to continue the work. And then uh, when I was doing the research for this thesis that I am now working on, which is how autistics express themselves through language and such, uh, I just suddenly got it in my head. I was like, nobody knows what it's really like to be autistic. I had these wonderful friends, none of them are on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. They don't really get it. And I just wanted, I just felt like motivated or I, I felt like I had to write this article. Mm -hmm. It was it's like this thing. Like, and so I wrote the article that went into the Washington Post in 2020, which kind of set this whole ball rolling. Yeah. And uh, she got back to me in less than 24 hours and she's like, we want to publish this. And I'm like, mm -hmm. what? 
uh, okay. And so uh, she's, a, I had a phenomenal, phenomenal editor and uh, it went in the post. And as you know, it just blew up. Yes. It did. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, the, and from there, you know, it was like, I, I can keep doing this. I need to keep doing this. People need to keep hearing about this. And, and, um, and the article, I think it was two and a half years ago, right? It's still got legs. I still get like contacted through my website for people who have just read it and, and, and had it sort of impact them in some way. And um, that's really special. And that, that's really a gift um, that I didn't expect, but that is really, really neat. Yeah. What was the feedback on the article generally? I feel like a lot of autistics were very positive. And- well, the first, like, um, so I, it, as soon as it hit in the morning, mm-hmm. I remember, and, and we were just sort of starting to get the idea that we were in the middle of this global pandemic, but yeah. hadn't quite happened yet. So it's like mm-hmm. the end of February. And my mailbox like blew, uh, I mean, my, my therapist reached out to me and said, hey, one of my friends said I should read this article <laughs> and it's you. <laughs> and I'm like, what? So it really did, it blew up. My sister is a, a social worker in central Virginia and she got a lot of uh, people going, Hey, you need to read this. And she's like, yeah, I, I read it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know her. And um, the fir- even the comments, like the first mm-hmm. several hundred comments were really, really positive from yeah. people who were like, I had no idea or people were like, thank you so much for explaining my life to mm-hmm. my friends. Um, of course, after the first several hundred comments the trolls sort of descended and they had to shut down the comments but it was overwhelmingly positive and I felt this is something it's still emotional for me I Mm -hmm. felt like for the first time in my adult life like people actually saw who I really was Mm -hmm. not my sort of like neurotypical mask that we talk about like not this sort of like disguise that I put up so that people can't tell I'm autistic, you know, actually saw me and my lived experience, like mm-hmm. for what it was. And it was really special and emotional for me. And um, I, I just, I guess I never thought that would happen. And then mm-hmm. for that to happen, to have like so many people really get it was, uh, it was great. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. So, yeah. <laughs> I remember, so I think I started my podcast in, um, in right, also right before the pandemic in 2020 and was talking about, um, well, my life at the time, um, as a newly identified autistic. And then my mother and some of one of my sisters, and I think a couple other people sent me your article, like two weeks into having started the pod, like before it was even out, but I, people knew I was sort of thinking about it and trying to figure it out. And I remember reading it and just being excited to feel validated and so it's really cool that like the comments back made you felt so validated and it was like this nice validation circle because I think your article did kind of um show a lot of autistic people that the way we're living or the way we're thinking or the way we're processing is authentic and real and a lot of us are are kind of used to being gaslit or used to being just not supported in the neurotypical environment, even when people are trying really hard. And so to see reflections of my life in somebody else's portrayal of their life was very authenticating and validating to me. So it's it's like, it's just a beautiful, I think, example of, of autistics kind of together validating each other. So. <laughs> right, it really is. And also <clears throat> it's, it, the fact that it was like, sort of like us sort of like discovering each other, mm-hmm. right? Like. I've met many other like autistic people now with similar experiences to mine because up to this point in my life, uh, I had perhaps egotistically just sort of assumed that my experience (laughs) was unique, Mm -hmm. that nobody could really relate to what was going on with me because I'd never met anyone that Mm -hmm. could. And so for, we all kind of like realized that there were so many of us and we weren't unique. Well, of course we were, but you know, that, but we had these experiences in common and we weren't alone. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things also that was like a really wonderful, special benefit um, for me, as well as, you know, for the other people I've met um, because of it. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, obviously there have been autistic self-advocates for decades. Right. Um, and, and 
the internet has had a big piece of that pie, but I, there was, at least my perception is that right before the pandemic and then especially afterwards, there has been this explosion of content and media and newspaper articles and all these things. Um, and I think a lot of it is because autistics are realizing that there are other people like us out there and having new ways to engage with each other and find each other is, is so valuable and so important. And yeah, I just, it, it's it really is. interesting how your article fits into that timeline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We sort of, we're starting to build our own little community. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, being able to be a part of a community that doesn't involve me having to leave my house is phenomenal. It's yeah, awesome. and I'm with you there. <laughs> it makes a big difference. Yeah, to as as someone, I don't have particular social anxiety, but I do have sort of the traditional like autistic. I get overstimulated. I don't like a lot of noise. Yeah, I don't like unexpected social conversations where I haven't scripted or practiced what I'm going to say. And so, being able to like be yeah, in my own comfort zone with my cats and my coffee and still be able to talk to like you or somebody else. Um, and it just feels, again, much more authentic and much more comfortable where, you know, if I'm out in the public world, I have to put on the neurotypical face and and it's exhausting, and it's exhausting right? and awful. It and yeah, that, that's what I wish people would understand because mm -hmm. it's exhausting. Yeah. It's it there's really so is. much on top of just whatever it is that mm -hmm. I'm doing that I have to do when I leave the house, you know? And, yeah. and like, um, I joke, but seriously, like, even though I'm not really concerned about COVID anymore, mm -hmm. I still wear a mask because yeah. it makes my life easier because mm -hmm. I don't have to worry about my facial expressions when yeah. I go out. And that's yeah. been huge. That's been a huge help. Who's your friend? This is Leo. <laughs> Leo has to bomb every podcast that I film recently. <laughs> It's really bad <laughs> um, because it's I think I start handsome. talking and he's like, <laughs> you're talking, but you're not talking to me. So oh, yeah. No. Thank yes. you. I'm sorry. He, uh, you know, no, he's very cute. You're not the first person he's bummed, but he's oh, hello. <laughs> okay. Sorry. You were no, saying, that's okay. Um, what was I saying? Oh, that, the um, mask. the mask, because I have been really interested to hear how many um, autistics have reported kind of favorably on the pandemic conditions, obviously with the pandemic itself, but all of the different um, social situations that we entered and the way social situations were framed during the pandemic in terms of wearing the mask, staying apart from each other, not necessarily having to talk to strangers as much because no one wanted to get close. All of those things really made going out into the public world a lot easier for me and a lot easier for many of the other folks I've talked to. Um, and it sounds so antisocial, but in, in my experience, it actually made me more able to socialize with the people I wanted to socialize because I had more energy because I hadn't just like had to talk to John from down the street about some random social thing that no one cares about and used all my energy for that. Um, and it's funny how many autistic people have kind of said similar to you that taking off the best during the pandemic was a lot easier and a lot more supportive for them. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. that's all. I do want to <laughs> um, point out though, because there is a caveat there, even though this is not one of my things, there are yeah. autistic people who can't stand to have something oh, touching sure. their face. Mm -hmm. And I feel so bad for them Yeah. because they literally can't leave the house. Mm -hmm. They have to choose between having a sensory experience that's extremely difficult mm -hmm. and in some cases like almost literally painful mm -hmm. or staying inside and yeah. I think that is one of the things about the autistic experience that gets overlooked when you're talking to someone who quote unquote looks normal mm -hmm. is that they're referred to as high functioning autistics right and I find that really funny because I don't feel high functioning <laughs> in any way, as far as that goes. Um, we have the exact same sensory challenges. We get overstimulated, mm -hmm. we get overwhelmed, we have to deal with meltdowns, we stim, we do all of these things that people think like traditional autistic or what they think of as autistic mm -hmm. people. We have these same struggles and they, it's not just like being introverted. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's on a, different level from there for it sure. really is almost physically painful for us mm -hmm. in some of these situations when we're overstimulated 
by our sensory environment. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, the thing with the cloth on the face, it's like, that's not one of my things, but certain sounds are my things Mm -hmm. and I can't function in those environments. Yeah. I'm also a, a sound get very easily overstimulated by sound and one thing like in terms of kind of caveats around the mask another thing is i have auditory processing disorder which a lot of autistics it's not like you know the same but it's co-occurring a lot and um the masks made it you can't read lips anymore so it got rid of like my whole process for actually understanding what people were saying to me um and i had to say what 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 like six times more often because usually i can see the lip and i can guess but if I can't see your lips move when you're talking, then I, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's definitely a mixed bag, but it was, I think what was interesting to me is that as many people as the pandemic and the restrictions of the, not the pandemic itself, but the, the social differences in the pandemic restricted as many people were also sort of lifted up by different social obligations in the kind of public sphere, which I just think is really interesting. Yeah, it sort of created a more loving level playing field yeah. for us where we, yeah. we had an environment where where we could really excel or or work up to our actual potential without having to spend all of this extra mental energy yeah. making neurotypical neurotypical people comfortable around mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Because that's something that I want to do. It's not like a chore. I I want people to be comfortable <laughs> around me. I want friends. I want, you know, I'm in a relationship. I'm, I'm newly engaged. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's it was um, late May, early June. And so it's oh, still wow. very, very yeah. new for me. Um, but when I think of like this is a relationship that's that was enabled by the fact that I could go out and sort of mm-hmm. like not put people off, you know? Yeah. And even though at home, like he knows me so well, we've been together for over five years. I don't have to wear a mask around mm-hmm. him, but yeah. it did sort of like, at least initially, like my ability to blend yeah. kind of facilitated our sort of getting together and, and dating and such. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's, it's, to some degree unfortunate that we have to mask it all but it's also very true that it's it's still very necessary in certain <laughs> to be successful in certain aspects which is yeah uh, so uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about is um I know that in your I want to talk to you about your thesis too <laughs> but sure. um, in your earlier work um you focused a lot on how women and girls present autistically that which was a weird way to say that because I'm tired today but how autistic women and girls have different traits or different sets of traits or Mm -hmm. or kind of perform differently than men traditionally do and masking I think is one of those spaces where it looks a lot different sometimes for women autistics than for men but are there other I guess traits that are most overlooked is what I'm getting at for for autistic women or girls I think you know it's a good question because, of course, masking is, in fact, one of the yeah. traits of mm-hmm. autism in women. Um, but I think it's some of the things that, you know, we we have to do in order to, you know, be successful in school, like in college or mm-hmm. in a job. We have to sort of make these um, these compensation, mental compensation mechanisms mm-hmm. to, for me, it's, it's to... Um, understand like visual information like that's a really hard one for me Mm -hmm. like when i would when i read studies now i don't look at the graphics Mm -hmm. because they just they confuse me they make it worse and the fact that and you know of course we have executive functioning workarounds that we have developed and lists in our head and things like that and i think a lot of women who are autistic don't realize that not everybody has to do that that they're doing all of this extra mental work to perform at the level that is you know equivalent to other women of their similar experience Mm -hmm. intelligence what have you is all of that extra mental work all of those workarounds that we developed as you know, when we were younger to be able to do our schoolwork, to be able to do our classwork, and then to be able to do our work at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the things that that surprised me the most because I thought uh, Asperger's, I just thought of the whole social piece mm-hmm. and the sensory piece. I didn't really think about the fact that, you know, it was it's also a learning disability in a way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
understanding that I wasn't good at, at those things because I was autistic, not because I wasn't trying hard enough or, or concentrating or whatever. So yeah. that I think is something that for women on the spectrum that they, that they should be aware of and kind of layer, let yourself off the hook for. Yeah. Yeah. So the executive dysfunction piece of, I think a lot of people aren't even aware of what executive function means and all the little bits that go into it. And I completely agree that a lot of women are doing a lot of extra autistic women are doing a lot of extra work that they may not otherwise notice they're doing. That's a really insightful piece. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I guess we should do the executive function primer, right? Like what is executive function? <laughs> and it's, and it's simply, I mean, the bit simplest way to put it for me is information prioritization. Yeah. Yeah. So we prior uh, executive function allows you to prioritize incoming information. Mm-hmm. It allows you to prioritize tasks. It sort of allows you to sort of set up and plan your day. Mm-hmm. And if you don't naturally do those things, the workarounds are a lot. really yeah. a lot. Yes, mm-hmm. a lot. I think it's a good way of putting it. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. Um, other, I'm trying to think. So and it's like if you Google executive dysfunction, you know, some people tell you there's seven executive functions, there's 10, there's 12, but there's, yeah, like you said, the planning prioritization, there's task initiation, starting your thing, seeing it through and finishing it. There's working memory, being able to hold information in your head for a period of time, whether it's visual or audio or just thinking like thought information, which I have really poor at. And I didn't realize how poor I was at it until really I started living with other adults and they could just do it. And I was like, what do you mean you can walk across the room and remember what color the thing was the whole way across the room? Because <laughs> I oh can't God. do that. <laughs> and now I'm like, oh, okay, most people can do that. Got it, check. But I like, I don't remember colors. I don't remember shapes. I don't remember, I can't look at a map. If I look away from the map, I won't remember what the map said anymore. It's gone. Yeah, it's gone. It's gone immediately. So that's like, that's an executive dysfunction, right? And so a lot of us are struggling with those things. A lot of women are struggling with those things and not realizing that it's something you should be able to do. I was just like, no, like it's normal for people to not remember what color the thing was the minute they look away. And then, yeah. you know, it took living with other people to be like, oh, cause none of my family can either, but like, oh, let's, let's be all surprised because it's, you know, they're probably neurodivergent too. So it can be complicated to be a, yeah. an autistic yeah. woman. I think one other, I, for me, I don't know if this happens for all autistic women, but I'm kind of face blind. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's really embarrassing. I'm really face blind. <laughs> yeah. I'm... Somebody would be like, hey, you know, how are you doing? How have you been? And I'm like, I have no idea who this person is or where I might have met them, yeah. but I'll just play along. Hopefully, Hope they eventually give you information enough ring a bell that you can or they'll it say out. a name because mm-hmm. usually if they say their name i'll be like oh yeah i remember the name mm-hmm. i just said yeah yeah so i know and that's just really hard and mm-hmm. it's just one another one of those um pitfalls like yeah. social pitfalls like little social like potholes that we mm-hmm. hit trying to be autistic in a neurotypical environment. It's, that's so frustrating because pe- I'm also face blind. People think that you don't care about them because you don't remember what their nose looks like. <laughs> and it's like, you changed your earrings and your glasses. I had no chance. This is that's not right. on me. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. It's, so yeah, that's, a, a, I guess, a, another really good example of ways that autistic women might be compensating that other people don't have to because they remember faces and uh, don't have to memorize earrings or accents. Hairstyles. Hairstyle. Interesting yeah. purse. Shoes. Uh, <laughs> right. I always look at shoes. Except shoes, it's good. Women sometimes wear, have multiple pairs of shoes, but men usually have like the one pair of shoes. So... <laughs> It's, it's so hard. Like exactly. I, I always like, I look at someone, I'm like, is there some sort of like unusual mm-hmm. feature or something yeah. I can, because I can print objects. Yeah. I just can't print faces. I can't you know? print objects either. So that must be really nice. And not for very long anyway. If, it's, if it's, I'm looking at it, I can recognize it. But if I look away, I don't know what the thing looks like anymore. Yeah, no, I'm that weird person at work who knows where everything is, mm-hmm. it, even stuff that's not my department. Yeah. Like I, yeah, cause they'll be like, hey, Christine, where's the such and such? And I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. it's over there. You get to go around there. And then on the fifth shelf up on the left. And I don't know why. It's like I have this great memory for where people lost their keys. Mm-hmm. 
as opposed to the person who actually lost them. So. See, I'm, this is so interesting. We're going so off topic, but it's so interesting. I'm yeah. also really good at mapping, like in terms of I can tell you the same thing, like get the dish at the top left shelf. It should be, you know, this part above your head. But I couldn't tell you what the dish looks like. <laughs> like I, know, right? I can say, I can sort of, like I'm thinking of it in a way that I understand that it's the dish. And I can maybe say, oh, it's this big, but I don't know what color it is. I don't know if it's ridged or flat. I don't know, like, if it's in a pile with other dishes or not. I don't, you know, it's so, so I can give you the direction to how to find the thing, but I can't tell you what the thing looks like. And I never quite <laughs> realized that before, just trying to describe it to you now. So I'm, I, I'm going to go look that up. What does that mean? <laughs> oh, anyway. It's, it's always an adventure. <laughs> It's really, I just, I think brains are so cool. I just, I just like talking to other people about, well, how does your brain work? Is it the same as mine? <laughs> so could we, I want to talk about your master's degree before we get too off topic. Um, Cause you're working on, I think what you're working on is really cool. Um, can you, can you tell us your, um, like your thesis topic again? Cause I know you mentioned sure. it before, but yeah. I, I, I danced around. Um, <laughs> so one of the, I, I feel like I have to give like a little bit of backstory yes. because yeah. So sorry, this is going to be kind of a drawn out explanation, but um, let me see if I can cliff notes it. Do people still use cliff notes? I don't know. I don't um, know, but I'm old enough notes, that I, anyway, <laughs> I did. So, so. so when you think about um, underprivileged, communities and you mm -hmm. think about say people of color or people who are non-cishet or people like that and you, and you think that they they those people are the ones that you sort of turn to when you want to learn more about that experience the mm -hmm. experience of being a person of color in this country for instance but when you have people with disabilities they are assumed because of their disability whatever it may be uh, to not be able to speak for their experiences because they're disabled. Mm -hmm. And so for people with autism, this is really, um, we are really in the dark ages still, I feel like yeah. when it comes to research, because we're autistic research by and large in the scientific community is still dictated by completely unbounded assumptions made by autistic researchers in the seventies and eighties who studied, you know, nonverbal mm -hmm. male children. And population of autistics. Yeah. Yes, yes. And so autistic people are not thought they're supposedly missing certain human qualities, mm -hmm. right? And so we lose what's sort of called um, our, our ethos or, yeah. or what it is, you know, our, our ability to speak for ourselves because we're autistic. And, and um, Dr. Yergo really defines this sort of circle really well about how you can't understand me because I'm autistic. Mm -hmm. And then because I'm autistic, I can't explain something to you, but then you don't get me because I'm not human. Mm -hmm. And, and it's this, this thing. And so what I decided to study was, as you said, we're sort of in a Renaissance right now with autistic women yeah. and people on the spectrum, sort of writing about their experiences and sharing them and coming into the mainstream. And so what I wanted to study is how do autistic people get that sort of um that sort of ethos that sort of yes i can speak on this topic mm -hmm. kind of thing back how do how are they reclaiming it what are the rhetorical strategies they're using um to sort of like take back i feel like this is a cliche now but to sort of like take back their narrative reassert mm -hmm. themselves as as being able to control the narrative on what the autistic experience is like and what people think of when they think of autism mm -hmm. so yeah and I, you're doing that through a series of interviews with yes interviews people. and, and also um i i have i was given permission to screen a couple of private facebook groups Wonderful. for autistic people all of course the the personal information has been mm -hmm. removed it's just quite literally it's just the language mm -hmm. and um and go through and and sort of like well of course i'm doing a, a qualitative data analysis mm -hmm. which involves this this archaic thing that's called coding i don't know why it's called coding but you basically pull out themes and then you connect yeah. them together and whatever but it, what's been really neat for me is that um of course all the expected themes come up you know mm -hmm. uh, as far as like having challenges about being autistic in a non-autistic world and mm -hmm. but one of the things that i i was really surprised by is that 
I not in once not in not one single instance could I ever have I come across someone who says that they had a normal conversation with someone who wasn't autistic. <laughs> it never happens. They're mm -hmm. always either they're not the the neurotypical is put off by them or doesn't understand mm -hmm. them or they have to sort of put the mask on in order to communicate with them. It's like it's like being thrust in the middle of a community that speaks a different language mm -hmm. from you and having to sort of wait around and figure yeah. that out. So, yeah. so it really, when we think about rhetorical strategies, the idea that you have to come to the table every time, you know, to, and speak in a language that's not native to you. I think that's something that's really, that informs a lot of our experiences to an extent that maybe we don't even realize mm -hmm. when, for people on the spectrum. Yeah. One of the things I work with with clients a lot is communication skills. And one of the things we talk about is how autistics are very often or asked slash required to learn how neurotypical people communicate, but neurotypical people are very rarely required or even asked to understand how autistic people communicate, even though we do have some good data and some good strategies for understanding how autistic people communicate. So it's not like a foreign language with no dictionary. The dictionary exists, just no one wants to like take it out of the library and read it, you know? And that's really, that's really frustrating. So it's interesting to get some, some of that from your study too. Yeah. yeah it's, um, I also, of course, I mentioned the autism paradox, which mm -hmm. is the term that I've come up with to describe the situation that autistics, quote unquote, high functioning autistics find themselves in, which is to either uh, show their autism and be socially ostracized or hide it and not mm. be given the accommodations that they need yeah. to function. And so what you're talking about, about how like, neuro, like neurotypical people don't have to learn how to speak mm. autistic. So this, there's a, this happens in the workplace. It's what I call mm -hmm. reverse accommodations, mm -hmm. where if there's say a misunderstanding between an autistic employee and a neurotypical employee, the autistic employee is the one who has to make up the gap. Yes. Mm -hmm. They have to, we have to accommodate the neurotypical mm -hmm. people in our workplace. It's not the other way around, yeah. even though it should be, mm -hmm. right? Like I could explain autism in the workplace to someone in five minutes if they would just give it to me, mm -hmm. but they don't. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's, um, yeah. So that's, <sighs> yeah. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> I think I should stop talking now. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's very frustrating. Yeah. No, you're. I'm and it's you. happened to me so many times. Yeah. And so I have a little bit of a personal, like I have a little resentment about it. The still. number of guests we've had on to talk about their experiences with various forms of neurodiversity in the workplace and how many people have reported struggling really hard, even with management that's sort of trying their best within the realm of what they're able to do and companies that are supposed to be neurodiversity friendly and affirming and all this. And it's still like, why is it so hard? And I think that you've pinned it down really well. It's hard because it's still the onus is still on the neurodivergent person to do the work to accommodate as opposed to the company or the other employees. So I think that's, that's really good to highlight, even though it's very frustrating. Yeah. And I have also found that part of it's generational, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, women or people my age that I interact with, they really, they're coming to this very late and very yeah. late in their lives. And so mm -hmm. when I interact with, with young people, say like the next generation down or people my niece's age, mm -hmm. she's, uh, she's going to turn 19 in the fall. And when I tell people like that, that I'm autistic, they just are like, oh, okay. And that's mm -hmm. just something that is very normal, not normal, but it's something that they are familiar with. Acceptable, reasonable. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. it's just one, it's just another thing <laughs> mm -hmm. to them, you know, yeah. and there, and so in the places that I've worked where there's a lot of young people, um, it's been a lot easier mm -hmm. because I can yeah. just say, Hey, I sound like this sometimes it's cause I'm autistic. And they're like, yeah, that's cool. Mm -hmm. Like it's no big deal. Yeah. So, yeah, there is, I have also noticed a bit more flexibility in younger generations. And I wonder if it's um, related to the uh, broader acceptance of mental health conditions, even though autism is not a mental health condition. But when you talk about like, I think the younger generation, there's a lot more emphasis on it's okay to have depression or anxiety or any of these other things. You know, it's something that is treatable and you can like get better or feel better or work on it, right? And 
it's okay to need accommodations for those mental health conditions. And autism is not a mental health condition, but it's kind of correlative in that some of the kind of accommodation speech, like the way we talk about it is similar. And yes. I don't know if you, you don't have to have a response no, yes. to that, but I just thought about it somewhat. And I've, I've wondered if that's part of it. I have not I think looked so. into it. Yeah. I think so because I, I think they're just more open to the idea mm -hmm. that not everyone's mind works the same way. Yeah. Brains are different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Brains are yeah. different. And that's something that I think that's a main hurdle for people who don't understand autism. That's mm -hmm. usually the stumbling block is that the idea that someone else has an experience of their internal and external environment that's completely different. Mm -hmm. The idea that that experience is learned, it's mm -hmm. not innate. And of course, when you think about it from a cultural perspective, of course it's learned because different cultures have different mm -hmm. ways. And so autism in different cultures is sort of another one of these uh, uncharted territories where, you know, when you, when you put autistics in a culture like the culture we have in the US, which is all about, you know, individualism yeah. and putting yourself out there and, you know, and then you think of maybe a culture that's more cooperative, that's more introverted, that, you know, puts more of a premium on different behaviors. How does autism show up there? Mm -hmm. And is it different? And is yeah. it more accepted? Or is it less accepted? Mm -hmm. Or whatever? And so if we can apply that cultural lens to autism, all of a sudden, it that's that, you know, you can kind of get over that hurdle and be mm -hmm. like, Oh, there's different ways to experience the world. And once they understand that the way that they experience it is learned and not innate and that it can be different from person yeah. to person, that's, that, that's huge. Like that's mm -hmm. the big, if we can do that, then I think the rest of explaining autism gets a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. I, and I've, I've seen some research on kind of comparing how autism presents or the traits of autism from between different cultures, but it's mostly been done by, I believe, neurotypical researchers. So hopefully that's something that autistic researchers can start working on in the pile of all the other stuff that they're working on. Um, we, we just need more autistic researchers, but it's been nice to see, uh, see more people recently, see more names published who are self-identifying as autistic and stuff recently. So. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Awesome. And what is your hope for once your thesis is done, you know, which is we'll cross our fingers for very soon. Um, <laughs> what is your hope for what that work will will do for for kind of the field? There just right now, there doesn't seem to be a lot of autistic people who are respected as in as having these academic careers and these academic credentials that they can then turn on their you know, and use to explain their autism and sort mm -hmm. of uh, redirect where autism research is going. Mm -hmm. And where, for me, one of the big things that I want to be able to do from this thesis and in the future is that right now, um, the uh, disability accommodations laws that, are, that we have mm -hmm. are very specific. They're super explicit when it comes yeah. to accommodations for people with physical disabilities. Mm -hmm. You know, ramps and parking spaces and crossing signals and all of these things, they're down to like inches mm -hmm. and, and numbers. And it's all this hard data yeah. that employers can use to sort of like set up or, you know, that people can use in public spaces. There isn't anything explicit for people with invisible disabilities, mm -hmm. such as um, autism, such mm -hmm. as, you know, people with psychiatric conditions like bipolar mm -hmm. disorders and things like that. And what that leaves sort of like this whole gray area for employers to sort of either decide that their employee doesn't need the accommodations or that the accommodations mm -hmm. that they do need aren't reasonable. Yeah. And there's no, there's no hard, like, this is what you do if you have a, an autistic employee. And what I would like to get to a point where if someone says that they're autistic, they don't actually have to prove it. Yes. In order to get accommodations, you mm -hmm. just take them at their word. 
and that the accommodations that they get are understood yeah. by someone who hires an autistic employee is going to know exactly what they would need, mm -hmm. just as they would know what a hard of hearing employee would need or mm -hmm. what a visually impaired employee would need. And so if we can, can put together like actual language, actual things, you know, mm -hmm. and, and terminology for these accommodations and enshrine those into the Americans with Disabilities Law, then, mm -hmm. you know, that's the next frontier, right? Like that could change the way uh, people who are growing up now and coming into the, um, their career and their and coming of age, you know, to be able to work, um, their experiences, especially if they're on the spectrum or whatever, of work are going to be very different mm -hmm. from the experiences that you and I've had. And that's the hope. I mean, that's where I want this to eventually go. So I, I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime, but I at least want to carry the football down a few more yards yeah. <laughs> down the field. <laughs> I think that's all. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's too general, but I'm like, that's all, all I would like to do. Like, yeah, just get it a little further for the next generation. Yeah, that's fantastic. And so um, sort of collecting vocabulary and terminology that folks are using to authenticate ourselves and speak about ourselves is going to help kind of set up a dictionary or maybe an encyclopedia, some kind of <laughs> reference text for um, for these, uh, for the government maybe to get into the ADA or the uh, employers to use to set up right. accommodations in the workplace. Because yeah. that is, it's not there. We don't mm -hmm. have that language. No, not at all, not at all. No, yeah. so. <sighs> That's awesome, that's really cool. Oh, <laughs> that's yeah. I mean, that's sort of my pie in the sky, right? Yeah. Like that's something that I would like to make happen if mm -hmm. I could. But um, but it does make sense that once the work's out there, then other researchers can also pick up the ball and carry it. Like you know that it becomes a little bit more accessible to people. What the next step is once we have the terminology and some yeah. ideas of. I feel like I, uh, in my lifetime, mm -hmm. there's a thing that has come into being as part of onboarding for every job that I've had, which is sexual harassment training. Mm -hmm. That didn't always used to be a thing. I don't oh, know if yeah. you remember, but that was, that's new. And the terminology around it is also mm -hmm. only maybe 20 years old, which probably yeah. doesn't feel new. It feels new to me because I'm old. It, but I would love to have, say, like neurodiversity sensitivity yeah. training as part of that onboarding. I mean, like, wouldn't that be amazing, yeah. right? Like, yeah. You don't just have to watch a sexual harassment video. You can also watch a neurodiversity mm -hmm. video. And like I said, give me five minutes. Yeah. That's all I need. Do it. <laughs> give, me, give me five minutes and, and, um, and I'll, I'll give you all the information that you need. So mm -hmm. anyway, so now that we're actually like dreaming of things that I would love to happen in my lifetime, I'm going to throw that in there because I that would be so yeah, cool. That would be amazing. <laughs> and you're right. 20 years, like it feels like a long time and it would be nice if things are faster, but realistically... <laughs> It's not really that long in terms of human change. Like we're not a particularly quick um, <laughs> species in terms of changing our minds about things. It takes a while. So a yeah, while. yeah. But that would be pretty amazing if, like, by the time my kids grew up, there was a you know neurodiversity training every time you onboarded. Like that would be pretty huge. It would have changed yeah. a lot of my experience in yeah. Uh, like maybe we would have been identified earlier, for example, if someone had told me what autism was when I was eighteen. <laughs> instead of you know yeah right I mean I, I was a child in the 70s yeah. like the word Asperger's wasn't even it wasn't even like a well it was a word in the research community mm -hmm. but you know parents didn't talk about their kids having Asperger's yeah, like nobody yeah. knew what it was my poor parents they had like an alien species on their hands and <laughs> they did great they did so they were so great yeah <laughs> yeah and sometimes just having more education and more training would have been really helpful so like my parents did awesome, but also it would have been <laughs> nice to be caught nice to have earlier. the language. Right. And that yeah. kind of comes, comes back mm -hmm. around to what we were talking about is yeah. that, you know, we need to create a language around this. We need mm -hmm. to create like terminology and um, yeah. yeah. And then through that terminology, it'll be that much easier to educate people about yeah. neurodiversity, which yeah. is, which is, I think I don't want it to sound like autism is the only type of neurodiversity there is, even though of course it's the big one that everyone thinks of, but there are other oh, for things. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, you know, um, that fall under that uh, umbrella, like uh, ADHD to mm -hmm. some extent, or, you know, certain psychiatric mm -hmm. um, challenges that people have. Yeah. 
So, yeah. yeah. No, I think we're just both autistic and so we're focusing there. But it's it's also I think it's good like doing research in one field um very often leads to results and and kind of movement in adjacent fields, right? Like mm-hmm. that you can make leaps and bounds in one's narrow space and that will spread out to other. Just the way um autism um advocates have taken lots of language and ideas from the disability community, right? And the or the chronic pain community or the, and they're all different and they all unique, but there are some places that we can help each other and move each other forward. So, yeah. I know you're only partway through, so I don't know if you can answer this yet, but you can let me know. Um, Have you noticed any specific trends in language people are using, autistic folks are using? In terms of the terminology itself or the way that we're talking about ourselves, was there anything surprising in, in that piece so far? That is a good question. Um, what I am really noticing is these sort of these sort of fundamental differences between being male, either by mm-hmm. birth or by choice, or female, and the experiences of autism, the way that they talk about their autism. Those mm-hmm. the experiences are very very different. Okay. And I don't want to make any like grand proclamations about you know the way oh, men no, and women are treated in our culture because size, yeah. obviously that's part of it. Right. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I mean, men are much more focused on uh, finding a, a romantic partner, you know, or something of that notion. Like they're, mm-hmm. they're very much uh, romantic relationship oriented. Whereas women are much more like, I have friends. I just wish I had a boss that understood me. So they're much more work oriented. So interesting. Cool. And so, yeah, that was something that I didn't expect to see. Mm-hmm. Um, now my, my data set trends kind of young, uh, mm-hmm. because it's on Facebook, because it's on social media and yeah. because, um, the, although I'm, I'm on a Facebook diet right now, I, I haven't actually checked it since the last <laughs> time I updated my data set, sadly. Um, so they're much more comfortable in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and they're much more accustomed to having a safe space in which to talk about the things that are important to them. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, that was an interesting trend that I noticed. And in fact, some of the, the males have had such negative experiences um, and are so like jaded and pessimistic um, that I couldn't even include some of the things mm-hmm. that they wrote because they were so chauvinistic, yeah. so pessimistic, so, you know, painting an entire gender with mm-hmm. one brush kind of things that were born out of that sort of frustration why don't women understand me why do women date guys that are like this and not guys that are like me Mm -hmm. it wasn't really it's not really moving the conversation forward you know i mean i mention it because it's important because there's a huge community of autistic men that really feel sort of shut out of Mm -hmm. this essential human experience yeah but i don't i don't want to normalize the way that they express their feelings about it yeah but it's still it can be really important to acknowledge that they're there and to start like from my side as a coach and i'm sure for folks who are listening who are sort of more on the the intervention side rather than the research side it's good to know that and i guess that's just another point to why research like this can be really helpful right is to to kind of tease out oh there are groups that are having this experience and that maybe this kind of intervention would support them um to feel more yeah. integrated and feel more part of the community so yeah yeah mm-hmm. i um i talk about autistic myopia a little mm-hmm. bit because i feel like uh we have these big brains that like to focus on study things right yes, like we have do. these like <laughs> obsessions and passions and i feel like sometimes these men get so stuck on turning that brain on themselves mm-hmm. instead of turning it outside themselves yeah. on them you know, on other people, on what the experience must be like to be somebody who isn't autistic. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if they could do that, if they could take that big, amazing brain and and turn it, you know, mm-hmm. try to turn it towards, you know, point it at something else, yeah. I think that they would get a huge benefit from that mm-hmm. and that it would really change their lives in a really positive yeah, way. for sure. And not just men. I mean, women do it too. I just... Yeah, but your, your data set is, is just happens to be, yeah. That's really interesting. Thank you. Cool. Is there anything else that you would like me to be asking you about your research that I haven't asked yet <laughs> or, or that your audience should know or is 
exceptionally Well, I don't know. Cool. You got another hour? Because uh, I could keep going. <laughs> it's like my, I'll be watching TV with my fiance and, you know, somebody on some show will be like, you know, oh, we think so. It's on the spectrum. And he'll just mm-hmm. sort of look over, kind of side, side eye me. And I'm like, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not, it's not going to set me off. Don't worry. (laughs) But, uh, but I guess, yeah, that was, that's the one final piece, right? Is autism Mm -hmm. in, in popular media. And uh, I I would really like to see, there are some shows like on cable or, you know, these smaller networks that do feature people who are actually autistic playing Mm -hmm. autistic characters. And that's really important. I just feel like right now in the mainstream, it hasn't quite gotten there yet. Yeah. I've noticed that too. I'm not so much, um, I don't watch a ton of TV. I have a neurodivergent brain problem where it's too scary because I don't know what's going to happen. I have to to read spoilers and then watch it, which defeats the purpose sometimes. But um, I was talking to um, somebody about how there have been more like characters who are supposed to be autistic um, on network television recently, like in the past year or two. And there's also more um autistic actors like um kind of up and coming and I see their names more often which is fantastic but it's still so limited in terms of who you actually like it's a lot of from my from what I've seen and there's probably tons of shows I'm not even aware of but the ones that I am aware of it's a lot of like white male autistics and it's like cool there are autistics on tv but like I still haven't seen that many I haven't seen any positive portrayals of women autistics (laughs) Or they they will imply it without actually yeah, saying it, without and actually then, saying it, and then and it's... then all they show is like mm-hmm. sort of like the the super crip kind of thing, yeah. where it's like all the things they can do because they're autistic, yeah, and none of the stuff that actually goes with that, like mm-hmm. the meltdowns and shutting down and yeah. the mental exhaustion and the frustration that comes from always having to be someone you're not, and mm-hmm. I would like to see more of that. I would just like to see autistic characters carrying around ear defenders and like fidget, <laughs> fidget. But I'm like, it doesn't. I, I I would love to see everything you just said, and I think a a, a a true replication of the autistic experience would include all the high points and the low points, but also right. just the daily experience of like, you know, wanting my spinner ring and just playing with it incessantly, or you know, like people doing vocal stims in the background or like, you know, like there's nobody. There's no, nobody, nobody wears jewelry. Jewelry. <laughs> I'm a big, like I have like. We have a lot that, of those. That, yeah. yeah. That you know, I finally found actually, I, I worked with someone who made them for kids. It was like, Hey, could you make some for adults so that they look like kind of like regular jewelry? And they were like, yeah, yeah. We worked together. <laughs> we came up with design. I have a couple, you know, and, yeah. Just walking around and maybe like actually seeing them like, having a difficult situation at work and sticking it in their mouth yeah like that kind of daily (laughs) living stuff that's really what i would love to see i would i would watch i would just watch show an episode of an autistic walking around occasionally chewing on it like i just want her to be autistic characters or rocking back and forth i'm a rocker so if i'm like Mm -hmm. if i yeah if i'm starting to run low and i need some self-soothing i'll just start to sway a little Mm -hmm. bit when i'm in line yeah the grocery store the pharmacy or whatever yeah, I sway sort of horizontally. <laughs> Both of my kids are rock this way. And oh so no, I'm a side to side. Like I'm you. a side. Yeah, I'm a side. <laughs> and it's but it's really funny because at the end of a long day, we'll all be sitting watching TV, like a cartoon or something, and I'm like sitting there doing this and they're like doing this on the couch and like I would love to see a camera just pan by. Here's the autistic family, it's an autistic family. rocking <laughs> together. You know, <laughs> that's what we need in our media. <laughs> yep. Awesome. Well, this was a great conversation. Thanks so much for being here. I really, I I don't get to talk to other autistic people enough. So this has been a real pleasure for me too. I really enjoyed it. Oh, I really got, I can never talk to enough autistic people. (laughs) I am social. I just don't want to leave my room. Um, Mm. Could you let us know where can folks find your blog or uh, any, like any other work you're doing? Where's a good place? So um best place like sort of your one-stop shop is my (laughs) personal website which has links to my blog and it should have a link to my pieces on medium but i'm not sure if it does because it's been a weird summer (laughs) um and that is my just my name it's christine with a ch christine m condo.com and from there you should be able to find me um my blog is this great ape.com and that's my handle like on twitter and i 
on medium whatever so i've i've had the blog for like eight years now and there's no change in it now so that's how it is so it's this great ape <laughs> i'll put links in the show notes for folks so please go thank go you. check those out and you should read christine's articles they're really good thank you so much for listening to the neurodiverging podcast today i hope you enjoyed our talk with christine i was fascinated the entire time i think i could have talked to her easily for another four hours but you know we have to keep this podcast in a capsule there um, but we can certainly have her back in the future if you're interested in that let me know if you're not subscribed please consider subscribing on whatever platform you choose please consider leaving a review on apple Podcasts. it really helps other people find this podcast who are looking for resources so it is appreciated and please check out patreon.com slash neurodiverging and neurodiverging.com as well as christine's blog which is this great ape and is linked below thank you for being here i look forward to seeing you in the next episode and please remember we are all in this together Does your father know you're listening to this podcast? Well, when you're done, why don't you stop by and check out a show that is 100% dad-approved, Dadages. Hi there, I'm Chad Higgle. If you're looking for useful insights and practical advice you can actually apply to work, family, education, philanthropy, and just life in general, check out Dadages. That's D-A-D-A-G-E-S, wherever you listen to your podcasts.